Being with your changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode cloud servers. Head to Linode.com slash changelog. This episode is brought to you by Rollbar. Rollbar is real-time error monitoring, alerting, and analytics that helps you resolve production errors in minutes. And I talked with Paul Bigger, the founder of CircleCI, a trusted customer of Rollbar, and Paul says they don't deploy a service without installing Rollbar first. It's that crucial to them. We operate at serious scale, and literally the first thing we do when we create a new service is is we install Rollbar in it. Like we, we need to have that visibility, uh, and without that visibility, it would be impossible to run at the scale we do and certainly with the number of people that we have. Like we're a relatively small team operating a major service and without the visibility that Robot gives us into our exceptions, it just it just wouldn't be possible. Alright, if you want to follow in Paul's footsteps and start deploying with confidence today, head to rollbar.com slash changelog. Once again, rollbar.com slash changelog. Welcome to JS Party, a community celebration of JavaScript and the web. Quick heads up, this episode does have some swearing. We normally bleep swear words, but in this case, it's just one word. It's repeated quite a bit, and it also is part of the conversation. You'll understand once you get there. So if you're listening with sensitive ears nearby, you might want to wait for a better time. But otherwise, here we go. All right. Hello, JS Party people. This is K-Ball reporting live from Jamstack Conf SF. I'm here with Katie Siler miller front-end architect at Etsy. Yes, yes, as of today. As of today, that's amazing. (laughs) Yeah, big day. So I'm going to ask you about front-end architecture and architecting because I think that's a good thing. But first, let's talk about your talk. Yes. Um, So you had a talk here at Jamstack Conf yesterday, is that right? Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, so um, my talk was called Get on the Jamstack. Um, so a couple years ago, like three years ago now, I made this ridiculous website called Oh Shit Git, which is a list of problems that I got into with Git all the time and then a list of steps on how to solve them. And the website kind of went viral extremely unexpectedly to me. I feel like the name of it just captures a <laughs> common sentiment <laughs> among developers. Yeah, no, I I really, I think that was like, The key to success is that I came up with this ridiculous and memorable name for the website, and it surprisingly was still available to buy the the domain. (laughs) That's amazing. Okay, so talking about that and the Jamstack. Yeah, exactly. So, so, yeah, Phil reached out to me and was like, hey, you know, you want to come and talk at this conference? And I was like, cool, Um, I didn't even know what the Jamstack was. I had to go Google it. You know, I'd heard about it, of course, people are talking about it around the industry, but, you know, I didn't remember what J-A-M stood for. And so I was kind of like, are you sure you really want me to talk at your conference? And he was like, no, 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 like Git is such a huge core component of the Jamstack, and I'd love it if you could come and talk about Git. So... um, you know, I talk about Git a lot. I've given talks many times and workshops. And so I kind of use this as motivation to go out and learn about the Jamstack and how Git powers the Jamstack. And um, so I did that by actually taking oh shit Git, which had been an index.html file that I crafted in about two hours, three years ago. <laughs> And um, actually moved it into Git for the first time and um, rebuilt it with Eleventy as a static mm-hmm. page builder. And There's now, something ironic about oh shit, Git not living in Git. Right? For the first I know. It, few it, years of its it was almost like a badge of honor at first. Like <laughs> people would be like, oh, you know, is it in Git? Can I link to it? And I would be like, no. <laughs> no, this is as old school as you get. <laughs> yeah, basically. So, um, so yeah, and you know, I, I lo- for a lot of years, people have been reaching out and asking, "Hey, can I translate your content into my language?" Um, and my answer was usually, "That's a great idea, but not now, because there really wasn't a good mechanism for people to submit new translations." 
so I kind of, you know, used this conference and this talk as motivation to enable that. And so now it's been translated into German. Um, I think I've had people volunteer for French, Serbian, Turkish, Russian, um, uh, Portuguese. So none of those are complete yet, but they're coming. So do you get them to make more inventive cursing for each one? I mean <laughs> yeah, I kind of, it's funny. So I, the, the guidance that I gave and the instructions is basically like, I use a lot of idioms and a lot of swears that, you know, probably don't translate directly. And I say, you know, just be free. And just all I ask is that you keep the, the oh shit part in right. some way, you know, whatever the equivalent of oh shit is in your language. So, right. <laughs> <laughs> Scheiße in German, I guess. <laughs> oh, Scheiße, Geisse. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, dear. So, okay. So first experience with Jamstack stuff yeah. and rebuilding this, how, how'd you feel? Cause I know a lot of our listeners are probably looking at this and saying that looks kind of interesting, mm -hmm. but I don't know. Yeah. I think, um, you know, it, it's my favorite thing by far. Um, especially I decided to use Netlify for hosting and I decided to use Eleventy. Um, mm -hmm. just because it was the simplest and yeah. quickest and easiest setup. And um, I know Zach personally, so I can reach out to him and bother him with questions. It always <laughs> helps to know yes. the maintainers or the, the authors of these frameworks. Be like, yeah. This doesn't make sense. Right? <laughs> but I, um, no, I think it's great. I, the, I think to me the real killer feature was, you know, I wanted to move into the stack and then basically immediately re-architect the entire page. You know, like I, first I've just brought over my flat index.html file. Right. And then I um, went through the re-architecting and by using a separate branch in Git and then using uh, branch deploy previews via Netlify, Which I had the, so freaking amazing, oh my God, by the way. Okay, I'm going to push this up. Yes. And I get a preview right away. I can send it to someone else. It's I can send it so to me. Cool. It's, it's I mean, cool. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm assuming that, you know, these kinds of things don't happen in isolation and Netlify probably was not the first people to think of this or, but there's just something about it that makes so much sense. The um, execution that they have there is, yes, is awesome it's, as well. It was so seamless and it really allowed me to um, feel comfortable re-architecting the site and going out and testing and looking at it and making sure that all of the redirects work. I mean, the fact that you can even set up individual like redirects in a, you know, basically a TOML file and then push that out to your branch and the branch handles all of the redirects the same way that like the regular site would. That, I mean, it, it really made it so easy. So I think, um, you know, especially for blogging sites, you know, OSHA gets not necessarily a blog site, but it's, it's kind of similar in a way that it's like I... You create the content and it just stays the same and it's not very right. dynamic. And right. So I think it's in a, a really, really good fit, basically. Yeah. So And it, there's been a lot of... I have been learning a lot from this conference about the way cooler stuff that the Jamstack can do. I know, yeah. <laughs> I keep like dabbling my toes in. I recently launched a new thought that is essentially a blog, right? But I'm like, okay, what can I do with this? This is fun. This mm -hmm. is exciting. Yeah, so, totally. Yeah, there's, there's some neat stuff going on. So... You mentioned something that I, is going to segue me back into talking with you about something we talked about earlier, which is um, you said, oh, you re-architected it. Yeah. And you just got promoted <laughs> to front-end architect. Yes, um, yes. Let's talk a little bit about what that even means in the front-end. Like, okay. what, what does front-end architecture entail in your mind? Yeah, so I think it's a, it's a couple of things. Um, so I think it's... We have all of these product teams at Etsy, who are going out and they're they're focused really on features and products. And then we have our front-end infrastructure teams, which I have been on, um, you know, my time at Etsy, I've, I've always been on front-end infrastructure. And there's this problem where when you're in infrastructure, you're not building product, you know, you're thinking about the longer term and the bigger picture and you want to make sure that you're providing 
tools and workflows that work for product engineers. Right. Um, because frankly, product engineers don't always have time to think about that. You know, they, they're under time constraints. They have deadlines. They have financial goals they need to make, meet. Um, so it's, it's kind of been growing organically for a long time that I was moving more into looking at strategy overall and making connections with folks on product teams and reaching out to them and really being like, what, what are your stumbling blocks? What do you need? And then on the other side of things, um, you know, Etsy, we, we have this philosophy of using boring tech, which in the front end space, that. I do, I love it as well, but I think that in the front end space, it resulted in us falling behind the times. Right. Um, and we've been working really hard to modernize our stack and get off of our, you know, we, we just switched from our old homegrown required JS build system Got that it. was built in 2011 to Webpack, right. finally. Um, so there's just, there's a lot of different pieces of the stack that we need to modernize and somebody needs to figure out how we're going to do that. Yeah, it's it, that's a really interesting problem because I like the you know this philosophy of use boring tech mm -hmm. is essentially saying as I understand it and you would know better than I did but as as I understand it you know, don't get shiny shiny object syndrome. Yep. Right? Do what's going to work to solve the problem at hand totally. without getting pulled into oh I got to microservice this and mm -hmm. I got to you know bundle all this and whatever else is but the challenge is you still don't want to build up lots of tech debt yeah. and you still don't want to you know, fall behind in terms of capabilities mm -hmm. because yes, oftentimes the boring tech is good enough, mm -hmm. but sometimes you lose a lot of productivity staying in boring tech totally. because there are actual breakthroughs that happen. Totally. And I think, I think that's something that we've seen is, um, you know, we have, we have two different parts of the site. So there's like the public facing site that, that everyone goes to when they're shopping on Etsy. And then there's a whole backend site for the people who are, who are selling their, their homemade items on the site. And for a long time, there's been this split where the, the seller backend was built um, first in Backbone and Marionette. And then in a couple of years ago, I think in 2015, we started switching over to React and now it's entirely built in React. But then our front end buyer side, because, um, you know, we we haven't said, okay, we're going to accept the the challenges of building a spa that actually works because obviously SEO is huge for us. Yep. Performance yep. is huge for us. Yep. Um, so we had this mostly like jQuery based um, JavaScript, JavaScript ecosystem in our, in our buyer front end. But it's getting to the point now where where teams teams aren't just working on buyer or seller, they're working across right. the product, you know. Yep. Um, and it's it's hard to have transferable skills between the two. Yeah. Well, and hard to have consistent design systems if you mm -hmm. have to have totally different implementations yep. and consistent interactions. Yeah. No, it's it's funny actually. So um, for a long time, my team owned the design system at Etsy, and we actually built an entire framework that would allow us to have a core vanilla JavaScript file for all of our design system components that would then either get wrapped up in vanilla.js to handle all of the DOM manipulation, or it would get wrapped up in a React component that would handle um, the React lifecycle and all of that because we were like, everything's getting so out of sync. One version's accessible. The other version isn't. The functionality is slightly different. Yep. So, yeah. Um, so yeah. So, and, and I think also too that, you know, we, we hire a lot of folks who come out of boot camps, and they don't under, they don't understand jQuery. They've never used it. They've never seen it. They don't, they don't have to worry about, this yeah <laughs> and how all the crazy hoops you jump through to to maintain what this is because they're used to es6 they're used to building everything in react building a node on the server yeah that that is interesting that's the other side of boring tech mm -hmm. is uh does that mean boring engineers yeah. <laughs> you know right like, right <laughs> or or maybe i should say bored engineers yeah yeah no i, I well i think it's i think it's, it leads to frustrated yeah. engineers and 
it leads to frustrated infrastructure folks like myself because, you know, um, we see code that we know is not performant, that we know isn't written the best way, but I don't blame the engineers at all because yeah. they're used to this completely different programming paradigm. Yep. And you kind of throw them in and say, here you go. So, so yeah, so that's one of the big things that we're working on is figuring out um, how to do client side, or excuse me, how to do server side React rendering and yeah. then hydration on the client so that we can do... Um, we can share components, we can share knowledge, but we don't sacrifice SEO and performance. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the simplest cloud platform for developers and teams with products like Droplets, Spaces, Kubernetes, Load Balancers, Block Storage, and pre-built one-click apps. You can deploy, manage, and scale cloud applications faster and more efficiently on DigitalOcean. Whether you're running one virtual machine or 10,000, DigitalOcean makes managing your infrastructure way too easy. Head to do.co slash changelog. Again, do.co slash changelog. Are you looking at Next, or is that because you've got so much established stuff you can't really go with a framework like that? Yeah, or? so I think what we're looking at right now, um, so uh, Airbnb has an open source thing called Hypernova, which is basically a server that you pass it a React component and a bunch of con context data, and then it will render the HTML and return it to you. Mm -hmm. So what we've been exploring first is um, basically taking that and bolting it into our existing PHP framework. That So we're like a big PHP shop. Right. Um, and basically, instead of using right now, we have uh, mustache files that we render on the server there would be a way to sort of indicate, okay, this this particular oh, this PHP is a view is a re it go, uses a, J a JSX file instead, right. and then it would go off and come back, um, the service would come back with the rendered markup, which we'd inject into the rest of the page, which is still probably coming from PHP. Right, right, And then right. that way... You basically use it as an external templating engine. You exactly. pass off PHP data as JSON that becomes context and yep. renders are interesting. Exactly. What's, okay, now I'm curious. Well, we're super early okay. in the process, so... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, so I'll ask questions, and if you don't know, you don't know. Okay. But um, So, what's the... I assume you're having the server co-located, so it's on the same node as the PHP server where it's running, or are you going over a network hop to render that um, template? So we are all in Google Cloud at this point. So I think that the what we're looking at right now is that it would be a separate service running in Google App Engine. So it, it is effectively you know, an HTTP request, but it's all happening but internal to our cluster. Google Cloud yeah. cluster. So yeah. what kind of latency do you see from that? We don't know yet. <laughs> we Fair just enough. have a proof of concept that um, okay. just started. But my hope is that we can do a lot of caching. You know, mm -hmm. um, I'm thinking, you know, we're going to, I mean, obviously we're going to have to wait and see what kind of features people are going to want to build out with this. But I'm guessing a lot of it is going to be things like, um, you know, a hard problem is sorting and filtering in search results, right? Like, I'm hopeful that the the markup for that isn't going to change a ton. It's more the um, the items themselves that we display, and so I think it's right. going to require a lot of consideration and thought on how we structure the modules so that we can cache as much as possible and then reduce the surface area of the really dynamic content that's actually going to need to to go all the way to the to the hypernova service yeah though interesting um so can you send it a set of requests in one http request yeah i think um or do we're getting a little outside of so my colleague ali jones is actually the one who's okay. been working on the the proof of concept but um i believe that it's parallel parallelizable 
people. I could uh-huh. be wrong. Interesting. Because yeah, if it I, isn't parallelizable, it. We, we should make it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Well, yeah, thinking about right, like in that server side world, which is I think some of our, our folks are in that world there with Node and things mm-hmm. like that. Like network requests are the most expensive thing. Yep. <laughs> and so imagining this situation, you either are going to want to do it like at the page level where you're mm-hmm. just like, okay, this whole page is React and mm-hmm. I'm going to do one fetch and it's going to render everything over there. Almost where like PHP is your, just your data layer mm-hmm. and then you're, you're passing that over. Um, or you'd want to have like, I, here's the set of components I need and I send them all in yeah. one request and get them all back. Yeah. But, yeah, huh. I think I think we're definitely more on the latter side of things because, you know, just just thinking long term about what the rollout plan is going to look like. I mean, it'll it'll probably start with we'll pick one component on the page. You know, maybe it's um, the logged in user menu yeah. or something like that. That's that's highly interactive, or maybe it's our conversations UI. Right. Um, and we'll just pick that one little tiny piece of the page and then just start there Yeah. with the expect- expectation that, you know, a lot of the stuff that we serve in our markup, it doesn't, it's not dynamic. It doesn't need, it doesn't to, need be. to be in React. It yeah. doesn't need to be React. You know? I love that because that lets you migrate gradually, exactly. which is something that is so often neglected mm-hmm. in this ecosystem because we're like, okay, just use the latest and greatest thing. Mm-hmm. That doesn't work if you have a massive existing application. Yep. <laughs> no, that's always the hardest problem, I think, in infrastructure is figuring out how do you do rollouts effectively? How do you stay on top of adoption you know, we have um, a lot of things that are still kind of hanging around mm-hmm. seven, eight, nine years later yep. because we we didn't focus as much as we probably should have on, on getting full adoption. And then it becomes this, like, compounding problem where when we want to try to build new things, we have to accommodate the four different historical architectures of Etsy.com right. that are still lingering in various corners of the co- of the code base. So, you know, all of our new infrastructure product projects take twice as long as they probably should because we have to it all has to right it all has to keep running yeah. right you you can't start from scratch you got a business going exactly <laughs> so it's kind of funny we we have a really big culture of rotations and boot camps at Etsy where folks can go and hang out on another team for a week or a month and just sort of get a taste for what other people are doing and we've had multiple product engineers come and hang out with us and at the end they're like I don't I don't want to be an infrastructure engineer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know how you do what you do and I'm like yeah. honestly I don't know how you do I could never be a product engineer again I'd someone would be like hey Katie you know can you go build this feature and I would be like okay here's a framework for building that feature yep. that's going to make it more maintainable and robust and easier to build and <laughs> so <laughs> Infra yeah. for life. I'm an inf- I'm an inf- infrastructure <laughs> engineer for life. Yeah. So uh, I'm curious to explore this more because this is a this kind of migration question is mm-hmm. something that I think that we uh, it's underserved in terms of educational content for mm. folks. So you mentioned there's like four existing <laughs> legacy architectures that I imagine you're trying to gradually remove at least some yeah. of the older ones. So what's the process for? Okay, we've decided we're moving on from this approach. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you get there, you know, get to the next approach from there. Yeah. So I think a lot of it is, um, you know, and I I will be 100% honest that I think this is something that we're still constantly learning about. Um, It's a really hard problem and we don't always get it right. But I think um, a lot of it starts with thinking about developer experience and, you know, I joke that I'm not uh, a feature or a product developer, but really I am. And it's the product, though, that I'm building is for other engineers. And I, I think you have to have a lot of empathy and a lot of um, concern and care to make sure that the underlying structure of what you are building doesn't leak into the API that you expose for engineers to use and that the API works in a way that um, that the engineers who are using it think about it, you know? And so mm-hmm. you have to put yourself in the shoes of 
someone who's going to be using this and thinking what's going to be the easiest way for them to switch to using this. Right. Um, and then I think it's just about partnering with teams, getting folks to like start to use what you built and have success with it. And then they share that and then other people start getting excited and want to use it too. So that that gives me some about how you get them on the new thing. Mm -hmm. But how do you get rid of the old thing? Oh, God. Um, it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> Ownership is a, is a big problem. I, I don't know. I, I honestly don't know if other or large organizations have this problem. but um, I would wager they do. I would wager they probably do. But, um, yeah, that's something that we struggle with is, is what do we do with all of these really old features that, for whatever reason... We don't want to get rid of, but nobody's actively working on them. Yeah. Um, because honestly, the upgrade path for that is probably non-existent. Mm. So mm -hmm. um, I think something something I've been kind of toying around with is coming up with a framework for like, okay, let's rank our pages. Um, a lot of times we rank things based on how much they um, contribute to like conversion or seller happiness or seller growth. And then we have these other pages though, where it's, it's not clear what their value is. Right. And maybe we need to sort of accept the fact that we're always going to have parts of the site that we're never going to upgrade or touch. And maybe what we need to do is wall them off into like a walled garden. Yeah. where we don't worry about the fact that we're duplicating code or that we are um, you know, taking copies of files that we're updating other places, but just sort of saying, okay, here be dragons. We accept that here be dragons, and we're not going to try to ever bring this forward. Because mm -hmm. um, for let's be realistic, that's, that's what happens. Yeah. You know? So... So yeah, so that's a, that's something I've been kind of talking and thinking about with people a lot. Is like, all right, can we can we make some wild gardens of code where we're not going to invest the time and energy that it takes to upgrade it until, um, as an organization, we decide that it's important. Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense because yeah, a migration path I've seen before or done before is you have sort of this walled garden of this is the old stuff. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes you start with, you have a walled garden that this is the this new is the and beautiful new, yeah. stuff. <laughs> and then you gradually, piece by piece, try to move things yeah. between one and the other. But you treat them completely differently. Yeah, I think um, the pattern that we've generally used is more of like a hybrid where we make the new stuff backwards compatible with the old stuff so you can kind of mix and match. Which has its, it's as with everything, there's trade-offs, you know, yep. like the trade-off with that is that the old stuff has a tendency to stick around longer, but it makes it easier to do like a gradual rollout. You know, I think, um, what is it like, uh, the, the, the strangler pattern. Have you heard of like the strangler pattern? I think so, but, uh, let's review it. It's for a the... terrible name, but, um, <laughs> basically the idea is that you kind of, it's like a, like a strangler vine grows around a tree and then gradually eats the tree away and replaces it. So I think the idea is that you, you build new stuff around the old stuff and slowly kind of eat away at it until the old stuff is, is gone. I could be butchering that. <laughs> I apologize that in advance a, uh, if I butchered what the stranger pattern means. <laughs> it's a very graphic metaphor for code. Okay, we're going to wrap it up in this new stuff, and Webpack is slowly mm -hmm. going to strangle the life yeah. out of our old code. Yeah. <laughs> Not to pick on Webpack, but... Uh, no, no. <laughs> I like Webpack. I'm glad, we, I'm glad we actually have it now. So Yeah, it's fun because it's... It's easy to hate on Webpack because mm -hmm. there are so many configuration challenges as mm -hmm. far as they've come, but there's a reason we all keep adopting it too. Yeah. You know, no, if you go back to the older ways, like you can't do a lot of the things you can now do mm -hmm. with Webpack. And yeah, it's hard, but like complexity is conserved. It's got to be yep. somewhere. Yeah. Well, we have a team of three people whose entire job it was for a year was to figure out how to migrate us onto Webpack. So. It's not easy by any stretch of the imagination, but yeah. um, it was worth it. You know, we again with the boring tech, we sort of 
It took us a little while, but once it became pretty clear that Webpack was like the de facto mm-hmm. standard and, and the support is there, the, the, maintenance, the maintenance is there, we said, okay, it's time to, to start using it. This episode is brought to you by Algolia, search technology to power your business. Trusted by Twitch, Stripe, Adobe, and many more. Even us, yes, we use them to power our search and we love the way they obsess over that developer experience. They let us fine tune the index for the best results and report back what people are searching for, even servicing search terms that get zero results, which we love. Check the show notes for a link to get started for free or head to algolia.com to learn more. Another topic I wanted to pick your brain on, um, it, though I've, I'm supposed to get away from using that metaphor because that's also a, <laughs> a little bit of a weird visual. This there. is a Halloween episode. I know, right? <laughs> um, another topic I wanted to to ask you about, uh, to not try any metaphors, is design systems because yes. I saw that. You were one of the authors of the Design System Handbook that yeah. I think Envision sort mm-hmm. of coalesced yep. together from a different folks, and you brought it up a little bit. So tell us a little bit about how you think about Design System. What makes a good one? How do you develop it? Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, so, you know, Design Systems to me, I think, is this natural progression that, you know, I've been doing this for almost 15 years, and... Throughout that time, I mean, it's had a lot of different names. First, it was Style Guide, and then Component Library, and um, you know, it, it's it's it just makes sense. You know, every other like computing language uses small reusable modules of code. So, I mean, it, it's it's an idea that just makes sense. But I think that again, you know, kind of like what I said before the difference between a successful design system and an unsuccessful one is, is really putting care into that API Mm, Um, mm -hmm. and thinking about, all right, how, you know, the way, the way that you build a, um, you know, a custom dropdown component to handle your specific product use case versus the way that you build something that is, completely reusable and exposes an API so that allows multiple different teams to inject their own data and their own interaction into a component that handles opening it, animating it, you know, how do you how do you surface what the user selected? How do you handle um, accessibility is a huge challenge for things like yes. that. You know, it's a completely different mindset. And systems thinking <laughs> has to go into every layer of of the, the design system basically mm-hmm. and and i think it's really exciting that several years ago you know uh gosh it was probably 8 or 9 years ago now that i at my job i suggested that we create a reusable pattern library because I was getting so frustrated that you know it's it's like the 50 shades of gray <laughs> like I would every single photo you know every single uh, photoshop document because it was photoshop then yep. they sent to me had four different grays and they weren't standard and yep. nothing and I was like for the love of god please give me something that I can reuse yes and um I think at that point the designers were kind of like what but it seems it seems to me that designers are like much, much more on board. You know, a lot of organizations in Etsy actually, our design system initially came out of designers, not engineers. Yeah. Which I think is amazing. Yeah. You know, and I'm like, I'm really glad to see this kind of component based development becoming a thing because it, it makes so much sense on so many levels. Yes. Okay. So let me dig a little deeper into that. So you mentioned systems thinking at mm-hmm. each level of the design system. So mm-hmm. can you maybe play out first, what are the layers of the design system mm-hmm. that you're thinking of? Mm-hmm. Um, and then maybe highlight a little bit about how systems thinking influences mm-hmm. each one. Okay. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, it's sort of, if you think about, you know, Brad Frost introduced kind of the atomic design 
language um, a long time ago, and I, I, I think a lot of it still makes sense. You know, you kind of start with, like, what are your colors? What are your fonts? What are your icons? Um, thinking about putting together a color palette that is something that designers can mix and match and express creativity, but also it meets accessibility requirements, that you have strong guidelines about, well, you never use the light gray on a white background. It only can be used for text on a black background, you know, and so um, to me, I think that's one of the hardest pieces, and I'm glad that I work with really talented designers who can who can yeah. visually come up with okay, this is this is what the 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 visual and informational hierarchy of text on the page. It's, that's the hardest part of any design system, I think, is yeah. is something that you can reuse. And then from there, it's really thinking about components and what are what are the smallest pieces of your components a lot of times you know a button might be you know I feel like that's the canonical thing for design systems because buttons are everywhere There's buttons a- are everywhere <laughs> you'd like to think they're simple they are they not are simple. not simple at all and you know I think again it kind of ex- thinking about how do you how do you write your CSS in such a way? You know, I think a lot of folks have adopted this idea of having a structural class and then themed classes and just thinking about the interactions between those and, and what options do you expose to people? How do you allow them to make the button bigger? How do you allow them to make the text bigger? What happens if they want to put an icon inside of a button? What happens if the text wraps onto multiple lines? Um, there's so many things you have to think about to build a component that seems so utterly simple, you know? Yeah. What's the difference between a button that, um, submits a form versus a button that opens a custom dropdown? Um, (laughs) what about a button that changes the pagination? What does that look like? How do you build that? You know, so, and then from there, once you get into the more kind of, complicate you know the interaction with a button is relatively easy although obviously the thinking about it is not um with your components you know that idea again of what are the smallest units that i can build and how do they interact with each other and build up in order to make something really complicated like um a modal overlay dialog box you know something like that that is it's it's massive in terms of making sure that the entire page is structured correctly so that a screen reader knows when this accessible dialog box is open that it should ignore everything else on the page. You have to know how to capture the, the focus um, and the, yep. the tabbing, the handle tab order. You know, so there's all these like really deep underlying facets to the interaction, but then there's also like... What, how do I make it so that designers can use different sizes of it? What, do, what happens if they want to have a header or a footer that stays fixed in the modal and then the rest of it scrolls because it's taken over the whole page? What about mobile? Like, what about the tap interactions? So, I mean, it, it really, there, there's so much complexity on so every single level and to me the best design systems abstract away all of that complexity mm-hmm. and the folks who are like you know the designers and the developers who use it you know maybe they don't even know that all that stuff is happening in the background they just know that they can combine right. it and it, it does what they want you know yeah <laughs> that's interesting it's almost like so as we talked about, there's so there's the implementation piece of this, but mm-hmm. as you're talking about, there's thinking that is architectural thinking, but design, mm-hmm. right? So I, I don't know if I've ever seen the title design architect, yeah. but it's almost like you need that separation oh, totally. of like, I mean, there's a little bit of, okay, this person is specializing in graphical design, what the thing looks like. This person's focusing on, I don't know, information architecture, mm-hmm. I guess is the closest mm-hmm. area that I've heard, but mm-hmm. yeah, that's yeah, really I, interesting. And honestly, I think I've worked with... Um, you know, several designers in the last four years at Etsy on building this design system. And they all are like design architects. You know, they think about those higher questions. They have systems. They have a systems mindset, you right. know. 
And I, and to me, I think that systems mindset really it transcends just software architecture. Absolutely, and absolutely. That's super cool. <laughs> um, I'm still like spinning thinking about design. <laughs> I could talk about design systems all day. <laughs> yeah, well, and it's it's interesting. So maybe the the thing I would ask um, if thinking about a design system from now the perspective of a front-end developer Mm -hmm. what um, what are the key pieces in terms of designing that API Mm -hmm. that are going to make a difference Mm -hmm. in the engineering utilization there Mm -hmm. Um, well I think a lot of it really depends so so there's a couple of different ways to approach how you build a design system so some design systems just provide here's um, a bunch of CSS classes and some example markup and you go out and you build it in whatever language you're going to use and you just use our classes um, and you use our markup structure and you sort of handle everything else. And then there's all the way through to we provide all of the components to you basically. And I think the interesting thing about the API is a lot of times those components might be um, PHP markup or some other like server-side language or these days most likely it's probably like React or Vue components. And you want to have an API where engineers can pass in properties that correspond to the, um, you know, sort of like the CSS classes that you're going to apply. when You know, so if they pass in you know, button is huge, then it applies the button huge class. Right. Um, <laughs> and I think thinking about the the translation from a CSS class to a consistent mm-hmm. property that you pass in in a right. JavaScript component is yeah. really interesting. And then I think there's a lot um, around, you know, the design system that we use, we sort of provide these structural classes and themes, but then we allow folks to heavily modify. We have, um, you know, it's, I think like, like Bootstrap does this, Tailwind does this, where you, you have like margin classes, padding classes, borders, text colors. So there's a lot of thinking you have to do about, okay, so if, if someone is building this button and they want to pass through additional classes and parameters, you know, having having your React component set up to allow those properties to just get passed right through into the markup yeah. that gets output is really important. I think, you know, because because there's a balance, right? Like you can't have you can't have a property for every single possible thing that people are going to want to do with your components. So it's really about thinking, okay. How can I make it so that it's it's really clear when I pass in this prop what I'm what what's the markup going to look like when it comes? Well, out there's the other side? there's kind of a deliberate constraints thing too, right? Mm-hmm. Like an engineer might might not be thinking about the fact that there are only certain spacings mm-hmm. that fit within the, the design and the design system, and so by making that something that you're passing in where there's like I don't know three different margin classes mm-hmm. or something like that, you don't get engineers who are like wait, but if I try to measure this with my pixel thing, it's actually 14 pixels <laughs> yeah. instead of 15 pixels. Oh, God, pixels. no, 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 no. That's, that's, I think, honestly, I, that's just something that I, I work really hard to try to help engineers feel, feel empowered to push back on designs that don't follow the system. Yes. Like, I generally tell them, I'm like, you know, if the designer hands you something that doesn't exist in the system, go out and build it with the system as close as you can get it to their design, show it to them, say, is this acceptable? And then if they say, no, this isn't quite right, that's when you can have a conversation about the trade-offs of writing custom markup, writing custom CSS, maintaining that in the long term versus using what's available. Or then you can have a, a conversation with your design systems team or whoever owns your design system about, hey, these patterns don't fit what my designer's want to do anymore so maybe we need to expose a new class or a new variable or maybe a whole new pattern needs to be developed so so I think a lot of times 
engineers, especially more junior engineers, they'll get handed a design and they'll just go, they'll measure it and they'll go and they'll build it exactly. But if there's a good system in place, you know, you should never... You should never have to do that. You should never have to do that. You should never want to do that yes that's, that's a great way to unmaintainable css <laughs> exactly and exactly yeah. this is how we got this is you know it's exactly that thing which is why design systems exist in the first place is to solve those problems so this raises another related and interesting question which is how do you think about the evolution of a design system because mm-hmm. you know, We'd all love to create the one perfect thing and then <laughs> oh, yeah. always be able to use it. Uh-huh. And that's not reality, no. right? Like reality evolves and changes and our constraints change and things like that. So how do you think about sort of managing that process yeah. and yeah. making the trade-offs of does this de- belong as a new thing in the design system mm-hmm. or should we remove this option and do something either custom or yeah, yeah. build it closely with the system? Yeah, I think... Um, as, as far as like the last question, you know, um, adoption and, you know, you don't, when you think about it, like you don't necessarily want or need to have everything in the design system. Like the stuff in the design system should be reusable by any team in any context. And maybe like the cool, flashy new thing that, the designer on the search team needs is so specific to search that it's not about building something that's reusable. But what I generally tell people is, is build, build every component that you build custom on the site as if it were already in the design system. So that if we get to the point where, we put it out there and other teams start using it. We can just copy and paste the markup and the structure and the CSS into the design system. And then everything is in alignment and it makes it much easier. Cause you know, if you build it just kind of any haphazard way, if you're not thinking about, all right, if this is going to eventually be reusable, then we can't port it very easily. Yeah, that's a that's a tricky balance though because as totally. you mentioned like product engineers one they're often under tight deadline constraints yeah. <laughs> and two they may not even have the perspective of what are all the variables that people might want to change here. Totally. Totally. And I think um we we have a pretty good setup right now where a lot of those conversations are happening more in design crits and the designers who work really heavily on the design system go to other teams crits and there's like a global sort of all of Etsy design does a weekly crit together so I think it's it's about having those good relationships outside of the design system world with you know the actual designers and engineers who are going to be using it and making sure that there's a really clear open line of communication yeah just constant Talking, communication, yes, yes. back and forth. Well, and, it, and I mean, and it's funny because probably one of the busiest like customer service channels at, in our Slack instance is the design systems channel. Ah, uh, interesting. People are constantly popping in and asking questions. How do I use this component? I want to do this thing. The designers asked for this. How do I make it happen? Um, yeah, so it's it's a lot. <laughs> You definitely have to have a very customer service mindset in order to work effectively on a design system team and relationship building, clear guidelines about contributions, you know, um, at least at, at, at Etsy, our design system kind of represents our, what we hope, you know, and we're not perfect, nobody's perfect, but I, I like f- to think that it's it's our highest ideals for what our front end code should look like. Everything should be perfectly structured. Everything should be perfectly accessible. Everything should be consistently named. <laughs> Not that we always achieve that because we're humans, but <laughs> but I, I mean, in my opinion, I think if other people are building stuff in their own stack that follows the kind of lofty ideals and guidelines that we put down for the design system, then they're going to be set up for success regardless. You know, it's not, these are good architectural patterns for everyone. You don't have to be 
a design systems engineer to think about how do I separate um, business logic from interaction logic? You know, these these are important things everywhere. So, absolutely, mm-hmm. awesome. Um, the only last note I have to talk with you is to uh, highlight what I think you on Twitter you said was your career apex success. <laughs> you recently were subtweeted yes, by Horse JS. I was, <laughs> yes, that was awesome. Yeah, I was I was very very lucky to be invited to MC um, JSConf US in oh, California. Nice. Yeah, I missed it this year. Oh, I was it was sad so to miss fun. It. it was my first JSConf actually. Oh, so I got thrown they? in the deep end, but um, it was amazing. It was so much fun. I really enjoyed emceeing. If anybody else wants me to emcee their conference, yeah. <laughs> I welcome an emcee. It was a it was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, and I tweeted a picture from backstage, and Horse JS retweeted me like instantly. So I have theories now about. I think I know who Horse JS is. At JS Conf two years ago, mm-hmm. there was a whole talk yeah. about unveiling Horse JS, which they didn't because yeah. they staged it. But it was really funny to have them doing that and have Horse JS subtweeting them as they're doing it. So we're like, <laughs> we know that he or she <laughs> was at was JS Conf yep. doing this, yep. listening to the talk about yep. unveiling Horse JS. Like, yeah, I'm like, hilarious. I'm like, I've actually, the person who I think is Horse JS, I've asked them directly, like, are you Horse JS? And they always say no, but I don't know if I believe them. <laughs> <laughs> I've also heard a really good theory that it's not just one person, it's actually a bunch of people. And I think that makes um, a ton of sense also. But the data I, they did expose in that talk seemed to indicate that if it is multiple people, they are at least geographically co-located. Okay, okay. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but, you know. Who knows? Horse Jess is still out there. You can geography. Come on. (laughs) 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 So, yeah, so that was probably the the highlight of my career. (laughs) And, of course, it wasn't about anything, like, interesting I said about JavaScript. It was, like, a picture. (laughs) But that's okay. I'll take it. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Anything else you want to talk about while we're on? No, this has been a really awesome conversation. Thank you so much for inviting me, Kevin. It's so great to be here. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me, Katie. Thank you. Take care. All right. You too. All right. Thank you for tuning in to JS Party this week. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the shows. Head to changelaw.com slash community. And do us a favor. Share this show with a friend. We're just an Apple podcast. Go into Overcast and favorite it. And thank you to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. And we move fast to fix things right here at ChangeLaw because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. We're hosted on Leno Cloud Servers. Head to Leno.com slash ChangeLaw. Check them out and support this show. Our music is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. And you can find more shows just like this at ChangeLaw.com. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Thank you.